G'day and welcome to Lunch Money, where uh, workouts, special situations and capital raising specialists uh, give us their views on the weekly news. Um, my name is Nick Samios. I'm the director and fund manager here at Hermes Capital, and I'm your host today. So once again, welcome. Um, just a reminder to uh, like, share and subscribe on YouTube or on your uh, podcasting platform, if that's where you're listening to us. Last week, we saw the collapse of another privately, private equity-backed retailer, Seafolly. Uh, um, it makes me wonder, what did uh, private equity see in all these retailers in the first place? And, and more interestingly, perhaps, uh, what did all those debt providers um, see in retail? Because they certainly piled on uh, mountains of debt uh, on top of the private equity um, for those for those retail uh, chain deals. What else is private equity private equity up to? Um, is there money sitting on the sidelines and they're eagerly going over uh, potential investments, uh, waiting on distressed investment opportunities, or are they uh, putting out fires in their own portfolios? The other thing that, that's in the news this week is uh, extension of JobKeeper, uh, the extension of the payment holidays by the banks. Uh, the government's uh, talking about once again extending uh, the relief on insolvent trading. Um, at the same time, we've got the government and the banks in particular are saying that they're very mindful of not perpetuating zombie companies. Um, so that seems to me to be a bit of a juggling act. To discuss these uh, these topics, uh, I will introduce our panellists, starting off with Gary Blom from Main Street Capital. G'day, Gary. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Good afternoon. Yes, it is afternoon. It is afternoon. It is afternoon in uh, on the over east, as they say. But yes. uh, we do uh, we do have watchers in uh, in WA as well. So good morning, uh, if you're uh, if you're watching us from WA, um, Gary. Tell us um, a little. Well, tell us a little bit about Main Street Capital, and I'm also interested to know what uh, what keeps the folk at Main Street Capital busy these past few weeks. Yeah, look, uh, Main Street Capital been operating since 2008, and um, we really have two specialties. And they're very different. Our first specialty has been that we take um, Aussie companies to the US and set them up in the US and then raise capital for them as a US company, um, predominantly in Series A, B and C. So, And uh, the majority of the capital comes from either private equity or from uh, venture capital. Um, over the years, we've taken our 46 companies to the US that fit that criteria. And um, that obviously has been affected with what's going on currently, and that we'll cover that when we talk about retail, et cetera. And then the other part of our business, which is totally different, which is uh, helping restructure and refinance companies here in Australia that are in trouble and right. uh, looking at uh, finding alternative sources of capital for businesses that are needing to be restructured. And so that's our, our core, core two businesses. With those capital raisings, uh, where you're taking companies to uh, Australia uh, to US capital markets, uh, typically, what are the ranges of the of the capital raising? Look, um, we you know obviously raising capital in Australia is very hard, you know, and we have, you know, we've been doing this even like Main Street's been going since uh, 2008. We've been doing it since the late 80s. Um, we have 29,000 companies on our database. So these wow. when I companies, these are financial institutions that invest, you know, private equity groups. Um, and whereas in Australia, you'd be lucky to have 29 companies in total. Yeah. So uh, we really specialise in the minimum amount is $5 million, But okay. of most of these funds, because they're substantial, you really don't even get their attention unless it's a 10 you know, $20, 30000000 million type capital raise. Yeah. So it's not startup. 
it, but it's certainly growth capital in, in Series A type transactions, Series B. And uh, and what what is it that uh, occupies your uh, your professional time? Uh, is it is it uh, yeah? What, what what do you find yourself mainly doing? Well, we I mean obviously getting companies ready, um, you know, on that side of the business, getting companies you know investor ready takes a lot of effort because um, when you go to the market in the US, you have to look like you know feel like smell like a, a US company. You're competing with a lot of people, uh, especially at the moment because private equity, and back to one of the questions you asked early in the piece, um, you know, we've been dealing with these venture capitalists and private equity groups for years and years, but more than 50% of them at the moment are focused on just simply sorting out problems within their existing portfolio. Hmm. So they're not even looking at new deals. And the general comment at the moment is if we own less than 50% of the company, um, then we're not even looking at it. You know, we... We are really focusing all our efforts on our on our current investments. Yeah. So, we what we normally do, and this is why what we're doing even now is interesting. Our normal model is that uh, once we've got a company ready, we then take the management on a roadshow. You know, it's just a physical yeah. roadshow, and we yeah. might visit 10, 12, 15 states in the US. And obviously, you can't do that now. You know, one we can't yeah. travel there, we can't do yeah. that. So, we put a lot more effort back into now our Australian business, which is. Uh, really waiting for what's going to happen in the next few months in the restructuring of companies that are in trouble. I'm just curious, uh, when a company comes to you, let's imagine that they're in good shape, their financials are presentable, and uh, it's a, re- a you know a sharp management team that that can help you put an IM together. I mean, what? How long does the process take? I, I knock on your door and uh, Nick, at least four months. You know, probably yeah. four to six yeah. months. Um, yeah. And and the big difference is in the US that you know US capital. Uh, fund the jockey, not the horse. Right. right and so right. Um, it's really important that you've got a very strong management team yeah. and whatever you deliver, you know, I've always used the analogy, it's a bit like if a prince was coming to, to Sydney and wanted to find a princess and invited 100 girls to go to um, to, the, to a dinner, you know, you'd want to make sure that if you're invited, you've got the best dress and the best hair do and the nicest shoes, et cetera. And right, that's what right, it's like right. when we take companies to the US. You've got a it's like it's like a beauty parade. Yeah, they do call them beauty parades. Okay. Well, look, Gary, we're just going to put you on uh, on pause there for a moment while we introduce uh, our next guest, uh, Sule Arnotovich. How are you going, Sule? Hey, Nick. How are you? Very well, indeed. Well, what is in ha- what is happening, indeed? What's uh, we we had you on, I think, uh, one of our early episodes, episode two or three, um, and uh, this is our our sixteenth. Uh, thus far, so uh, uh, we certainly couldn't have done it without your early involvement, Suley. That's for sure. Back back then, it was the the early days of COVID, and we weren't really sure what was happening. And now I've got you back again, and you know Melbourne's back in lockdown. Um, you know, uh, quite tragically, uh, Victorians right now have to deal with the indignity of the uh, the AFL Grand Final being played in Sydney, um, amongst other things that, that that people have to contemplate. What is it that keeps you busy these days, Suley? It's, um, well, you know, I'm an insolvency restructuring guy. Um, so in the last few months have been, it's been sort of well written about quite quiet in insolvency and restructuring. Mm-hmm. All the stimulus holidays that have been announced have essentially enabled people to kick their debt problems down the road. So we've been um, actively working on clearing the decks, finalising a lot of um, incumbent projects, work in progress, um, you know, 
reducing the fall load because we, we definitely believe as of the fact that when the stimulus does come to an end, um, you know, there's a lot of buzzwords, the economic cliff and all this sort of stuff. At some point in time, there will be um, a day of reckoning, uh, whether that's in October or early next year, depending on when these stimulus packages run out. Yeah, well, it's when they run out is the big query. Um, I've, I've been watching and reading with interest this discussion of uh, modern monetary theory, which we won't go into here, but it's basically the economic principle that governments can print money with impunity, uh, which I don't personally subscribe to, but there seems to be enough people subscribing to it now, and that's why we're seeing all of this, all of this uh, money being floated and why people like yourself aren't necessarily as quiet, uh, as busy as they might be. I notice... Um, is it my imagination or if it, the last time I looked at your LinkedIn profile, I thought the emphasis was on um, sort of restructuring, but is it now uh, emphasising on insolvency? Is that because, or am I imagining that or is there an emphasis back on insolvency rather than? Well, well I think um, at a real small SME level, there's going to be a lot of terminal insolvency. Unfortunately, the restructure process in Australia is cumbersome and costly and often it, um, isn't able to be accessed by small businesses. The restructuring space is really in, in larger businesses, you know, maybe micro cap ASX type companies and the sort. Um, you know, our focus in terms of our firm is, is definitely in terms of enjoyment and pleasure is to work on bigger matters, do a lot more restructuring, a lot more deed of company arrangements, creditors' yeah. trusts and things like that. Um, our genuine fear is that if everyone keeps you know, we're basically on sabbatical leave at the moment and everyone's ending up big on their on their holiday credit card, um, mm. but they've got no job to come back to at the end of it in a lot of cases. Um, when the stimulus ends, we're going to spend a fair bit of our time on terminal, um, small-type liquidation bankruptcy matters, um, but indeed there will be some sizable restructuring work. In fact, we're starting to see signs now of early adopters uh, okay. in the restructuring space. The ones that are keeping us busy at the moment are actually Australian companies that got foreign production plants. Just okay. for access, they cannot get to the production plants, can't travel that easily. Um, the movement of money between countries is sort of stifled. So that, that's what's keeping us busy at the moment, sort of talking to Aussie-based companies um, about their foreign um, travails. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because, uh, you know, the supply chain is still fairly impaired, isn't it? Um, whether you're talking medical supplies or, uh, or all sorts of things, if you're dependent on, on stuff coming from, uh, from offshore. I noticed there was a, an article in the paper today, uh, this COVID thing being a real uh, middle class, yeah, middle class uh, Sydney being devastated by it. Because when you think, you know, small businesses had some relief and there's all sorts of relief, but you've got your white collar workers that are sort of, that are salaried people that, uh, you know, they may be working a few days a week less um, and they're not necessarily uh, on, the, on, get on the receiving end of, uh, of, of uh, benefit packages. And I also noticed that some of your larger competitors, even this week, are laying off more and more people. There's no doubt larger professional services firms have really felt the brunt of this. Um, you know, almost every of the larger big four accounting firms and indeed some of the major law firms have reduced staff numbers. There just isn't the um, entrepreneurial activity that there was uh, four or five months ago going on. So logical lo logical place uh, for people to cut headcount. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Well, look, uh, we'll bring uh, Gary back. Uh, I'm interested, yeah. Gary, um, you were saying that you thought that um, the, the PE funds were certainly being kept busy 
putting out fires within their own portfolios? Yeah, they, they, they have been. But also don't forget they're under a lot of pressure because most of these are fixed-term funds. Right. So, you know, there might be five-year, seven-year-term funds. Yeah. And they've yeah. still got to get capital out. You know, so yeah. they still have to invest. Mm. So um, what we're seeing, and that's why, you know, back to, and we'll get onto it, I'm sure, when retail, a lot of these, what they do when they're getting to the end of their term, um, the only out for them is to then do a, a PE to PE transaction. Mm. So you see one PE firm who's in a transaction where they offload it to another PE firm. And, you know, there's been a number of those examples, big examples in Australia of that over recent years. and. Well, it's, it's a parcel, a parcel, isn't it? I know that one of our largest competitors has been handed from one PE firm to the next. So, uh, yeah, well, you, there's been lots. You know, Quadrant did one to Archer Capital, you know, which yep. is a Red Rooster and all that group, etc. Um, yep. And and nothing's changed since the '80s when you know PE really is still looking for leverage deals, you know, leverage transactions. You know, back to the to the days that we saw in the early '80s, and that that means that they really don't want to put a lot of equity in. Um, and they want to um, really leverage as much debt as they possibly can. Now, that's great if the business is growing and it's normal, you know, cycle's fine. But in retail especially, Nick, what's happened, it's a perfect storm because um, especially in Australia, you know, our, our landlords have been uh, far too greedy for too long, you know, looking at, um, you know, rental rates which are far higher than the rest of the world. Mm. Uh, our labour rates are completely out of whack compared to retail rates in the other countries. Yeah. And so most of our retailers, big or small, have been working on very small margins. I'll ask you about landlords in a minute. Um, and that margins thing, I mean, wh one of the things uh, that I wanted to, to ask you about, Gary, in particular, was um, I, I was speaking to a friend of mine who's an M&A lawyer, and you'd probably know him if I gave you his name, but uh, I, I, he, he made the comment to me that a lot of these funds are, are very cashed up. Um, they yes. view this crisis. They're, they're saying to, they're ringing him up and saying this is this is our time uh, because they believe there's going to be buying opportunities. And certainly for a long time, I mean, even pre GFC, there was uh, a great capital overhang. You know, we've got very low yields. Uh, investors are very yield hungry. Um, so, so you would you would concur that there's a lot of cash on the sidelines. Oh, there is. I mean, don't forget, the, you've got funds that are sitting on, you know, hundreds of millions of billions of dollars of um, of capital, you know, and all that's predominantly, you know, here in Australia, superannuation money in the US pension funds. You mentioned about, you know, let's say the five-year closed fund, and yes. you're saying that they can't afford to sit on cash, you know, at the bank attracting, you know, a quarter of a percent interest. But at the what about the back end of that? If they've got a fund that's closing out at five years, it's not an ideal market to be selling uh, to do to be selling your position, is it? It's not, which is why they love to do these PE to PE deals because right. the, you know what happens is it's a bit of a mates, you know, sort of at the club. You know, no, so I call look, it. We'll give you we'll give you our uh, we'll give you our investment, and you know you can sort of uh, when you when you need to get rid of one of yours, come and talk to us. Sounds like musical chairs, just waiting for the music. Yeah, it is. It's a bit of and uh, and so. You know, they've got to get out of these because the last thing they want to do is have to hand back money, you know, to their, uh, to their institutions. Sule, you, you, you know, you heard Gary say that uh, these private equity firms, 
are um, are as busy putting out fires and managing their own portfolios. I know that many of these private equity firms they're certainly lean when it comes to personnel. I mean, that's their model is to to run lean. They've got uh, lots of firepower in the brain department, but not necessarily, uh, you know. So, are you? I mean. We see that banks, uh, banks, for example, lean on the insolvency profession to uh, to fill the gaps, and you have you hear about insolvency people being seconded to banks. Um, is that something that happens with private equity as well? Well, I, I sort of agree with what Gary said about uh, the PE to PE back deals. The problem at the moment is there's no there's two problems facing private equity at the moment. There's no genuine secondary market for these assets or business. Mm. Okay. And then if someone is really keen on an asset or a business, the, the major issue they're faced with at the moment is at what point in time after the transaction that I enter into will I be able to conduct business in an ordinary course of business normal basis? I mean, look yeah. at the travails Bain have had to face with Virgin. They're, they're doing a transaction to acquire you know, part of the business, part of the assets, but what they really don't know is when do people start flying and travelling at a normal pace? So it's everything mm. skewed by this massive unknown, um, which is future time. Well, 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 I mean, I didn't really want to... We've spoken about Virgin in recent weeks, but I don't want to get bogged down in that, but it is... I mean, that's not over yet, is it? I mean, the bondholders are still uh, making a hell of a racket. Yeah, they're, they're all going to face the same problem, though. Yeah. At the moment, the administration process looks like it's a essentially an, a, an asset grab and a debt compromise vacuum mm -hmm. uh, but it hasn't addressed the go forward operations of the business yeah, well, that's that's a big question. I mean, look, I, I know that uh, we, you know, sometimes as a lender, you miss out on a deal, you fight hard to get the deal, uh, but then you miss out on it. You know, the, the terms, of course, people, your competitors are slicing away at the terms and diminishing the security and forcing the price down, and sometimes it gets to a point where you're actually you miss out on the deal, and you go, you know what? You know, at the end of the day, that was the way it was sliced and diced. I'm kind of glad I missed out on it. So. We'll go to our headlines. The first one here is private equity under the spotlight as retail victims uh, pile up. Then we've got R.M. Williams, L. Catton Chair, defends private equity role in retail. What What is it? I mean, as a, as a Greek, uh, you know, my, my family always were, were retailers, little little shops, of course. But um, most Greeks that, that have been through what, what I went through, that they they say to their kids, for God's sake, don't go into retail. Well, what, what is it, Gary, about retail that um, holds such an attraction for private equity? Uh, I think it's scale. You know, um, if you've got a uh, if you've got a good retail model or, or a concept, you know, it's very easy to go and open. You know, a hundred stores or two hundred stores. Um, mm. It's not huge capital investment, you know, upfront to open up a retail shop. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, in the U.S., you know, you can see um, retail, you know, you can go from zero to 100 stores in no time because there's plenty of places to, to go. And at yeah. the same time, you know, here in Australia, you have for years, you know, Westfield, every time they were opening a new location, you know, they, they would invite retailers to go along. So it's a pretty easy, you know, you can replicate it. It's a cookie-cutter concept. Yeah. Um, and that's fine if you're making the margins. And, you know, you go back 15, 20 years ago, a 50% gross margin was normal, and you could make profit at 50% gross margin. Now yeah. you've got to make 68%, 70% gross margin because you're paying you know, anywhere 15, north of 15% on, uh, on your sales in, in rent, and, you, and you're paying you know, $23 to $25 an hour for your labour. So the, yeah. the economics don't work. 
and which means you've got to have more retail stores. You know, you've got to have try and get volume and then keep your corporate overhead very low and hope that you get, you know, a couple of percent falling to in operating profit, falling to the um, to each store's profit to the to the bottom line. It's interesting. I mean, I, I'm I'm no stock analyst, but um, you know, if you look at the, it's how Webjet, for example, has lined up against um, what's the one that's got all the all the retail locations. Flight Centre was it? Flight Centre. Flight Centre. Um, and, and now now, now Webjet's uh, shares uh, they've come back a bit, but they they went up, I think, because uh, because they have a web based model. And I read in one of these articles that, that I sent around that um, uh, the private equity guys are saying, look, the, the model's changing. Instead of having 200 stores, it'll be 25 stores plus a really strong web presence. Um, um, are you seeing that, Gary? Yeah, look, I, what's very, very important, and, it, and uh, you know, we obviously spend a lot of time looking at what's happening in the US. If you look at the US retailers that are doing well, it's where they years ago made a huge investment into their online business. Yeah. So if you look at them now, They've really created a very successful, you know, online, um, you know, non-bricks-and-mortar trend, you know, business. So they may still have a few bricks-and-mortar stores, but the majority of their business is moving towards online. Um, the, stores, the ones that we're seeing that are collapsing are those that did not make that transition. And, um, and the, the successful ones made that transition a long time ago. Okay. Listen, I've got a couple of queries for you on this, Sule, uh, with respect to retail. Uh, I mean, I, I haven't I haven't done a deep dive on all of these retail uh, all these retail VAs, the, the the big ones that are making the news. I mean, is is there an element of um, of bringing the the landlords to the negotiation table? Is that is that part of the story in any of these? I know as a as an administrator, you you're you're right across obviously the rights of uh, landlords versus the uh, the company in VA. Is this, is there an element of that? I, I think it's um, and the reason why there's a proliferation of these retail collapses. I think uh, we've touched on it in a loose fashion. There's too much debt. The labour costs are it is Australian-centric, of course. The labour costs are too high. The property costs are too high. There's too much debt. And in a lot of cases, they haven't implemented or adopted a proper e-commerce type delivery strategy. Um, yes, the rents um, have caused a lot of issues, but... Um, you know, at the moment, you get the feeling there's an expectation gap between what landlords think they should be getting and what they're entitled to be getting, and they're diametrically opposed from tenants. Um, in a few, in six months, 12 months' time, I think that expectation gap will uh, narrow and there will be better deals done. Yeah. I mean, as an as an administrator, I mean, you know, one of your one of your jobs, obviously, uh, is always to write the report and tell everybody what went wrong. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and um, and you know, because we've had such an incredibly low cost of capital, you know, as I say, official interest rates are, for all intents and purposes, nothing. Uh, I mean, you can lease a car now for I think what two point something, three point something. I mean, do you think that the very low cost of capital has is it allowing business models that that shouldn't work work where they would would not work under a normal capital capital base? I mean, is it is it just you know what, what, what do you think about that? Well, I um, you know I still think a lot of the major banks and financial institutions in Australia are supported by real property in their terms yeah. of their lending. They may call it business lending, but if you scratch beneath the surface, it's supported by property. So what you really have in, in the SME sector is uh, mums and dads and family businesses um, uh, leveraging their personal assets to support okay. 
um, these businesses. It's not like they're lending a massive exposure just on retail businesses in isolation. Yeah, no. Yeah. I think they're probably a bit of a furphy. Yeah, and Nick, the, that's where the banks got sort of a bit carried away because there was a large private equity group involved. They just felt a bit more comfortable, but they weren't really looking at what their true security was. So that's part of the issue. And so the in many cases, it wasn't the cost of capital. They breached their covenants, um, you know, and that's where they then the banks started to get nervous. I guess to some extent, you know, there is a mindset that if some private equity firm has got a, a whole lot of a whole lot of equity on the table, that they're going to work very hard to make sure the bank is kept whole. Because if the bank's not whole, uh, then the, the, the private equity people are getting torched. On the other hand, um, a lot of these funds aren't necessarily, you know, they're managing other people's money with all, with all due respect. I mean, mm. is there an element of that? Oh, definitely. You know, I mean, uh, you're seeing that today. I mean, I, I think an interesting transaction has been this one with the Rockpool Group, you know, and, you know, they were, um, you know, Quadrant who were in there as the um, private equity group. They were looking to um, sell, you know, either float that business or sell it uh, in, in you know, a year or so ago. Um, yeah, then all of a sudden they start to have issues with, you know, underpaying of employees, et cetera. And uh, then Perry wanted to buy back, you know, a bunch of them and had private equity prepared to fund him to do that. And then they pulled out because of coronavirus. They certainly have banks, you know, tapping them on the shoulder saying, guys, you know, you need to help us out of this or sort it out. I mean, they'd be, they'd yeah. be very nervous. Yeah. I mean, um, to what extent is there tension between the, the private equity investors and, and the senior bank um, debt holders, Sule? I mean, have you experienced that? Well, well I think at the core of it, uh, as Gary alluded to at the beginning, private equity guys want to get into this and they want to build scale. They want to build distribution and they want to get a massive footprint as quickly as possible. In a, in a, in a, and cash flow in isolation is okay in that environment. But when they get into our sort of sphere in terms of restructuring space, the first thing we do is look at profitability of stores and reduce the footprint to focus on the profitable stores. Yeah. So um, the, the banks are quite favourable. They've got you know, meaningful private equity balance sheets going into businesses, reasonable management teams. Um, cash flow is good. Repayments are okay. But profitability is a bit of an issue and over time um, if businesses haven't morphed their especially the e-commerce platforms in different directions they come unstuck I mean when we um, when we restructured Pieface a couple of years ago first time there were 55 almost 60 stores the mm. first round of restructures you know we, we we dropped that down to about 25 30 stores and that yeah. wasn't Enough. They still so we managed to achieve a compromise, a reduced uh, sort of footprint. Um, but really, that wasn't enough. What they still had to do was get their manufacturing capacity up because uh, they had a, a mass production facility and they're only producing pies for their own network. Crazy business plan has now changed. They're now supplying pies for petrol stations and things like that. And voila, you got a bit more success story. But it took seventy-five million dollar lesson to get there. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, <laughs> yeah. One day we'll we'll share a pie and talk about pie face. We've had this uh, this this. Obviously, we were all wondering about the September cliff, 
And, um, and, and now the, the banks, I think, with a little bit of pressure from APRA, have said that they are going to extend um, the, the payment holidays uh, from, from September by another four months. Um, they have emphasised that you're going to have to qualify for this. They're not just going to uh, hand it out willy-nilly. Um, they've also, yes, yeah, so you've got to qualify for it. Um, at the same time, uh, there's an article here, the banks are pleading with their customers to restart payments. So on one hand, they're saying, yes, we're going to extend your holidays by four months if you really need to and if you can prove that you, you, that you can pay it back. Um, at the same time, if you can start repaying, listen, don't wait till September, start paying now. And on top of that, the government has said that they're going to extend JobKeeper. Uh, I imagine, I haven't seen any detail on that, but I imagine that'll be on a qualified basis as well. And they've said they're going to extend um, extend uh, the the concessions on insolvent trading. So, uh, but by the same token, I, I've got this uh, email here from the uh, from the president of the TMA, the Turnaround Management Association, saying that they they support the government in everything that they've done. But by the same token, everybody's saying, you know, the TMA and uh, the government and the banks are saying we want to avoid zombie companies. Um, so how do, how do they do that, Sule? How do you how do you what what do you see in all of this? Well, at the outset, I'm totally against extending the holidays. I think yeah. there's a real problem. The questions that uh, are really at point here: How many good businesses are going to be caught in a trap of extending credit to underperforming companies that are going to end up getting pulled into this vortex at the end of the stimulus period? How many companies who weren't productive before COVID, have, have managed to access things like JobKeeper, have uh, rolled the stone down the road a little bit longer, who will be in worse shape at the end of the stimulus package. I think, I believe, um, on a humanitarian side, yeah, support and job seeker and social needs should be met. But as far as the business community is concerned, the, the, the more normal course of flow of funds debt and repayment should begin to almost lubricate the system. This is going to be an absolute uh, diabolical sham if this goes on for another six months. Essentially, people are spending on holiday on the credit card and they will come back and they may not have a job to go back to. Yeah, well, I mean, it's all part of this uh, religion of modern monetary theory, which is a real bee in my bonnet at the moment, which is uh, the governments can just keep printing money and uh, and paper over everything. Um, I've got one of our viewers uh, makes makes the comment that uh, the banks are very particular about lending to clients that have deferred payments. So you certainly want to be cautious about uh, extending your payments because the, the banks don't like I mean, they obviously understand, and as I say, I'm sure that they've, they've got the pressure from above to do that. Um what, what, what do you think, Gary? There is a bit of moral hazard here as well. Yeah, there is. But you know what? A lot of these companies are in uh, intensive care at the moment and, you know, they're on life support. And really by extending, um, all you're doing is extending the life support when, in fact, really what you should be doing is cutting it off. Um, you know, we will reach a time when the banks will go back to their normal practice which is, you know, as soon as a company defaults or as soon as they have a problem, they'll put them into workout. So, you know, a lot of this is just, um, you know, it all looks lovely and nice for the companies today, but we'll go back to normality, whereas a lot of these companies right today, they should be simply unplugging the life support and, and letting them go now, you know, because they, they, they're not going to come out of that. You know, the, the cancer's too great and they've already had it. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's interesting that you you say they're going to go into workout. Um, I did read one of these articles here, and uh, I, I can't quite put my my finger on it now, but um, 
uh, for a start, analysts, you know, uh, uh, you know, stock analysts are saying, well, you know, you can you can extend payments on loans, but we're still going to penalise the banks and uh, and treat you as if uh, a lot of those loans are actually impaired. Um, yeah. But the other thing is that I think that banks are still going to try and find a way uh, if if they think that you are a zombie company or that you you know. They are going to try and manage you out. I mean, what do you? There's 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 a quote in there somewhere, Sule, about about uh, helping. You know, the banks are going to want to help you. Do you think they're going to be looking looking, you know, <laughs> calling you up and asking for a restructure? Or, or I think they're currently in the vortex of uh, trying to be apparent that they're doing everything they can to help all of their borrowers. And there's a massive yep. government push uh, to ensure that all these financial institutions do the best they can. But the reality is, once you get through all the gilded lilies, is compound interest is working against the borrowers. It's building up at a quicker rate than it was before. Cap the capital needs are going to be massive. And at some point in time, the banks will be banks and they will call the debtors ledger in. They just will. Well, I think, I think from your point of view, Suley, I mean, uh, you know, you, you mentioned then compound interest. Uh, and the issue with that is that it's eroding wealth. I mean, you know yourself that... It's one thing to wrap up company up or to restructure the company and and, and find a way forward, and preserving the wealth, uh, you know, the, the wealth of, of not only the shareholders obviously, but of all the stakeholders. Uh, whereas if these things are perpetuated, wealth gets destroyed, and you find yourself appointed to the liquidator or something. As, as one of my friends in Queensland likes to say, it's a sucked orange. Daffy, if the banks already got reasonable security, um, you know, this compounding of the interest, uh, you know, as long as they they don't breach their covenant, you know, they're fine, you know, but eventually you'll get to a point where if they keep on compounding that interest, they will start to breach their covenant and then, then you'll start to have issues. Yeah, the only thing there, Gary, is that banks, are, you know, I think banks have been putting up with breach covenants for a long time. I was talking to a friend of mine in one of the major banks the other day and um, they were saying, you know, termination notices are verboten. You know, you, there's just no way. No one's, no one's allowed or authorised yeah. to send out a termination notice. That's in, uh, that's in the current environment. And, and yeah. I think you're right, but that yeah. will come to an end. You know, the honeymoon will come to an end, you know, and yeah. they'll go because the banks have got shareholders as well, and, you know, and yeah. then when they start having to um, account for their for their bad loans, you know, we're going to start to see some issues. So, you know, that's, we, you know it's a holiday period. As Philo said, you know, they're, they're on holidays and everyone's going to come back with the credit card completely maxed out. Look, I made uh, I made a comment uh, um, I think last week that it is it is something of a holiday, and uh, if only we'd known this was coming last year, we could have planned for it and uh, you know made better use of all this time. Sadly, now uh, you know I really hope that uh, what's happening in Victoria doesn't doesn't spread it spread spread across the border. But uh, I guess uh, I guess we'll wait and see. Look, we'll we will wrap it up there. I'll just ask you for any uh, any final thoughts. Uh, on where you see things heading in the next couple of weeks. I'll start with you, Gary. Oh, I think uh, we've, we've all talked about it. I think the big, the big challenge is going to be what happens at the end of September. You know, it's not going to just be that you know, job seeker and job finder and all these things fall out, but you know, landlords are going to start being um, under pressure. You know, uh, tenants are going to start reneging. You know, I think tenants will just walk away from there at the end of this three-month moratorium period. They'll just walk yeah. away from there uh, and the courts are going to be tied up with, you know, lots of small claims. So you're going to have landlords in trouble. You're going to have, you know, yeah. so it's a bit of a, uh, you know, a bit of a um, tsunami I think is going to happen from after September. And what about you, Sule? Well, 
you know, it's just farcical. I think I could um, take some credit from Gary today um, and make him wait six months before, you know, he could enforce it. Uh, whether when my circumstances or my ability to pay him aren't considered. It's an absolute joke. And I think it would be a terrible mistake if they extended beyond September. Um, yeah. It's certainly... It should be a hell of a lot more targeted than it was previously sort of um, issued. Well, the trouble is that we live uh, we live in a society now, um, uh, you know, the, 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 we're in the society of the participation award and, uh, you know, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe... Maybe that's um, maybe that's that's the fruit that we're harvesting now. All right, listen, we'll uh, we'll leave it there. Um, um, uh, thank you very much to Sule Anotovic. Thank you very much for joining us again, Sule. Very grateful to you for that. Yep. And, and thank you, thank you to Gary Blom. Really appreciate your time and uh, your your expertise, Gary, and your contribution. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure to help. You. Thank you very much uh, to our live viewers, and um, thank you very much to those of us that are watching us uh, over the weekend or listening to us via podcast. And we'll speak to you again soon. Cheers. Cheers.